Welcome back, listeners. It's time for Maya, my yoga audio. I'm your host, Megan Morgan, and today we've got another wonderful interview coming up with my friend and teacher of many modalities, Michaela Daystar. We've known each other for about the last five years, and we met through an organization that I've mentioned on the podcast before, Shakti Rising. And we've continued to stay in touch and work together when we can, and we're friends. And I wanted to mention that about four years ago, and for the 11 years preceding that, she worked at Mills College, where she helped to develop the social justice capacities and commitments of undergraduate students. And she saw a gap and a real need to support students in their being, rather than just focusing on the doing, to address past traumas, to develop emotional depth and resilience, and to help them to understand who we are in relationship to the issues that we care about. So she built Heartscapes at the intersection of self-reflection, spiritual practice, and social action. Heartscapes helps people who are committed to their precious contribution to the world and who know or sense that in order to live up to our contribution, we need to build a nurturing spiritual practice, and the capacity to work with the shadowy, mucky aspects of ourselves, and to do so in a community of practice that makes room for difficult questions and the fullness of ourselves. She does this through the system of Reiki, taught from the perspectives of its Japanese origins, and it's an incredibly accessible, elegant, and deeply effective pathway to remembering the wholeness of our true self and that bringing ourself into the contribution of the world is important at any scale. She believes that each of us has a contribution to make, and by virtue of being alive on this planet, you have a precious and necessary contribution. And every step you take towards remembering the wholeness of your true self strengthens this contribution. And she invites you to take that journey and be deeply provisioned for it. Michaela, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Megan. It's really lovely to be with you in this capacity and also just as a friend seeing you again. It's been a long time. Right. It's so nice. I know listeners, you're listening audio wise, but the format we use, we can still see one another. So at least it feels like we're engaging in a real life conversation face to face, even though we're not quite there yet. But to just dive into things, Michaela, you're the founder of Heartscapes, Provisions for the Journey Home to Yourself. You offer monthly intuition labs and Reiki. So for listeners who may not have heard of your company or be familiar with this kind of language or phrasing, tell us what this means. I read your bio, but I'd love to hear it in in your words. Yeah, I love that you asked, like, talk about what the words mean, right? I'm always balancing this, like, poetic, metaphoric with the like practical, but like, what does it actually mean in my life? Right. And so, you know, you touched on it a little bit in the bio that you read that I spent many years, you know, supporting people in doing the work of social justice, which looked a lot of different ways, but seemed to follow a certain pattern of, you know, being connected to a particular issue that one cares about, most likely because of personal experience that one had had with that issue, being personally impacted by it or witnessing it being impacting someone that one cares about. And, you know, feeling passionate about making change around that. And in my capacity in the work that I did, I was able to support people in building, you know, tools and skills and connections to do that work in the world. But what I observed is that at least inside of the container that I worked in, an academic setting and a, you know, 
community organization mentorship setting that there wasn't really space to support people in understanding you know, why they were doing what they were doing and to begin to strengthen themselves from the inside out so that their being was ready to engage that work from a more grounded, resilient, whole place. And so unfortunately, you know, I saw a lot of people going head on into really amazing good work and crashing because they, you know, on the inside were so exhausted. They were traumatized. They were harmed. They were not, you know, resilient to do the work that they were wanting to do. And so that fell out of alignment to me. And it also felt like I wasn't where I could best provide my skill sets. Like I wasn't actually that good at supporting people in organizing and, you know, doing a lot of the like political work that my students were interested in. But I was really good at supporting them and understanding why they were doing what they were doing and to help them to provision themselves for that work. And so when it came time to leave that position and actually prior to that, go to grad school, I kind of felt like at this crossroads, do I continue, you know, building my skills and expertise in this area of social justice leadership? Or do I, you know, go into this unknown territory of following threads of things that helped me be more resilient and more whole in my life and my work, and figure out how to maybe bring that to other people. And I chose to go in the direction of the path I was already on, and I have a master's in social justice leadership. But because there's this like trickster energy in the world, the program that I landed in, which is at St. Mary's College of California, their leadership studies program, highly recommend it. Excellent program. They approach this work from the inside out. They approach this work asking, who are you and why do you want to do the work that you're doing? And I'll never forget in one of the first seminars, I kind of was like almost crying about this. Like I have these two threads that I want to pull together. I want to contribute to social justice work, but I also want to support people in doing this internal work. And I feel like maybe that's where I'm supposed to go. And my cohort looked at me and said, why do you think those are two different things? Like, why do you think people who are doing social justice work don't need what you're talking about? That if you were to go in that direction, you would not also be supporting us. And they said, I need you to do that. So stop pretending that you're something you're not and follow that. And so that's a long answer to the question. But when I say heartscapes, I'm talking about literally what's our internal landscape, right? What does it mean to look inside? And what are the provisions that we need to understand who we are and what we have to contribute? No, I love it. That was a very necessary answer just to, I mean, that's a long career, right? Going over through the 11 years you were at the school and then the four years since then, just, you know, launching right into that. And I love the meshing of, I was on this path and I thought I had to divert, but it really turned out to be that they were the same thing and supporting one another. And I love that you got the reinforcement from the people around you to say, well, of course it is. Like you've been on, it's almost like you've had the power the whole time, you know, the Wizard of Oz, right? Like you've been doing it, all this work to get to this point and it's all valid. And I wanted to kind of dive into a bit of the Reiki. That's mostly what I think of when I think of you. And I know you do so many things and and healing modalities. And I know I have received and also I've been trained and, and give Reiki myself sometimes. But I'd love for you to tell us what Reiki is. I feel like you're much more advanced in that area and why you practice it, how you were introduced to it. And specifically, there's the perspective of the Japanese origins. I mean, to me, that seems evident, but, you know, just to, just to hear from you, the importance of that to your practice and teaching. Yeah, absolutely. So when I started this work, I had no idea what I was doing, honestly, you know, I, I got my, 
website, domain name, Heartscapes. And I'm like, okay, so what is this thing, right? And I think as is natural for a lot of us, you know, we want to share what we've been given. So Reiki and soul collage and emotional freedom technique, those are the three main modalities that I work in. Those all came into my life when I needed them. And then also just personally, my, my marriage was ending and it was just a real rock bottom time in my life. And so those three practices and others, but those were the three that really stuck with me and really saw me through that journey. And so naturally they were the place that I turned to when I thought about, well, what is my contribution? And I've really, over the three years that I've been, four years, 2020, just like disrupt all the time when you were talking about that in your last podcast, but it's three to four years that I've been running this business it really has distilled into, into Reiki as the center point. And then what about Reiki connects with these other things? So your question, well, what is Reiki? Depends a little bit about how you approach it. So when I first encountered Reiki, what I would have told you Reiki is, is a healing modality. It's an energy medicine practice that involves typically the laying on of hands and the transferring of energy or the channeling of energy from one person to another to enact some sort of healing response for all parties involved, really, but primarily the giving of that to another person. And, you know, I had been on the receiving end of that practice. And as I said, it was hugely supportive to me. And so, you know, I turned to it as something to learn as, you know, something I wanted to give and do for others. And I practiced Reiki with my first teacher, Elizabeth Fulmer, who's a really wonderful person, has built a vibrant community here in Davis around her Reiki practice and other things. And studied Reiki in a very, what I now understand as a very traditionally Western Reiki model, which has very particular characteristics that are very different from its Japanese origins. And I, you know, practiced it pretty extensively. It was a, you know, a gift and a joy in my life. And it was like I was actually meeting the potential of the work, that there was this like groundwater underneath that like my roots hadn't quite tapped yet. and. I suspected it had something to do with the fact that while I knew this was a practice that had a Japanese origin, I knew almost nothing about that origin. I had learned lots and lots and lots and lots about Reiki and lots of different styles of Western Reiki and could do a lot of things with it. But I knew virtually nothing about where it actually came from. And that started to be a real problem for me. Number one, because, you know, as a white woman practicing a Japanese modality, it didn't feel in good integrity to simply not know what those origins were, to be able to speak to them, to make sure that I was actually practicing from that perspective, to be able to say why a particular element exists in the system, you know, like just to have this kind of almost transactional relationship with these different elements. And secondly, because I was feeling this like, ineffectiveness kind of start to come through. And so that, you know, I kind of, okay, maybe I'll try this modality. I'll learn this one. I'll learn this one. And nothing was, was reaching that groundwater. And I, I almost gave it up entirely. And cause I was just so frustrated and it just, I was like, it just wasn't working anymore. And of all places, the place that I found that groundwater was in an animal Reiki class. And in that class, which I took totally on a whim, like, sure, animals. I like animals. I'll learn how to do Reiki with animals. <laughs> Why not? And in this class, we start doing these practices that are like nothing else I had encountered in any other Reiki space. And they were all about very clearly 
utilizing our mind, our imagination, our attention, focusing it inside of our own self down to our, our center and drawing from that place the inherent connectedness that we have with all life and therefore the connectedness we have with animals and therefore the ability to share Reiki with them was kind of the trajectory. But this shifting of the perspective from this is something that I am channeling through in and through me out into somebody else versus what I first need to do is look inside of myself, go to my own center, be brave enough to see what in the heck is there, try to move away the stuff that's in the way from, you know, my true center. And then from that place, just be with the life that's around me, not try to do something, not try to manipulate it, not try to change something, diagnose it, but just to be with it. And the reasoning in this animal class was that animals don't want you manipulating them. They don't want you doing anything to them. They just want you to be with them. They know how to heal themselves. So just be with them in that. And all of a sudden, it was like my roots hit that water. And it was like, this is what Reiki is. It's not about doing to other people. It's about being something different so that I can be with other people in a different way. And... From that perspective, I started studying the Japanese origins and discovered it's a very, very different practice that at its essence is a distillation and a, an alchemy of the spiritual practices that the founder of the system had been in his entire life. Mikao Yusui was a lifelong Shingon lay priest, Shingon Buddhist lay priest. He was, of course, deeply steeped in Shinto philosophy and, and spirituality, which is the indigenous practices of, of Japan, and the shamanic kind of blending of the two called Shigendo. And the system of Reiki was a distillation of those things. In essence, it's an enlightenment path. It's an accessible, simple, elegant system with five elements that more and more and more draws our attention inward and helps us to remember the wholeness of our true self, that we always have been whole. We have always been connected to the web of life. That disconnection is not only a lie, but it's the root of disease. And it gives us a pathway back to that. And it's gentle. It's very gentle. So that's the long and the short answer. The short answer is Reiki is a system of practice to help us remember the wholeness of our true self. Simple, but powerful. Right. So incredibly powerful. I did my, my training in that in Canada about 10 years ago now that I'm, I'm thinking of. And it did honor the, the Japanese traditions. And I still remember so clearly our teacher showing us the symbols, the sacred symbols. And she was just like, don't even write them down. Like we just did them in the air and, and had to practice them. And I remember thinking like, this is so sacred. And I was kind of really in awe of learning that. And very recently, I would say in the last year, I was somewhere online, probably Instagram, and somebody shared the the symbols on their page. It was just like, I don't know why this has been secret for so long. It's for everybody. And here they are. And I was just like, <laughs> I feel like my hair stood on end. And it's not, I realized it wasn't because it was about a secret. Like I'm not all for secrets. I think everybody should learn it and know it. But to me, it was the importance of knowing that lineage and knowing that history. Like our teacher recounted to us who her teacher was and who their teacher was, like all the way back to the origins. Like it took a long time. <laughs> you know, we're talking about early 2000s Canada. And then she went back to, you know, who her teacher's teachers had learned from. 
And that's a really important thing, I feel like, to me in terms of this practice, like not yeah. just saying like, this is a modality that can help me, but actually understanding the origins. And thank you for doing that work and yeah, acknowledging that in your own practice. It's really interesting that you bring up that example of the symbols, because I was just reading a long thread in a Reiki forum that I'm in about that exact topic. And, you know, so many different opinions about, yeah, is it okay to share them? Is it not okay to share them? And, you know, lots of debate back and forth. And for me, it comes down to like, what is your actual relationship with those symbols, right? And the mantras that are associated with them. Do you have a relationship with them? And for me, I did not for many years. And that was part of the dissociation was like, here's these three symbols. They mean these things. You use them to do this, this, and this. It's very transactional. It's very much like, here's the pill, apply it to this, you know, thing. And then, you know, move on about your business. I had no relationship with them. I didn't understand why they were, you know, why was this symbol associated with distance Reiki? Why was this one associated with mental emotional? Why do they call this one the power symbol? It was very arbitrary and transactional as far as what I understood about them. And getting to learn like where their origins are, right? They're, you know, two of them are just literally a sentence written in kanji, right? Like not even a symbol, but a, a sentence written in, in kanji characters. And why did they come to have the associations that they do in Western Reiki, which like there's a reason, but it's not accurate. And so that was one of the first things that I got to explore with my current teacher who teaches from this perspective and has has been one of the people who've done a tremendous amount of research in the last 25, 30 years on the origins. And, you know, a lot of what we know about it now comes from his interviews with people who studied with the founder who were still alive in the 80s when he was starting that research. But one of the first things that I got to do that really changed my relationship with the practice was to build a relationship with the symbols and mantras Mm -hmm. and to spend six months with one of them, right? And then another six months with the next one, right? And from that perspective, you know, it's like, yeah, you can share it, you know, you can show the first symbol, but if someone doesn't have a relationship with it, it doesn't mean a whole lot. So it's like, what's the purpose of sharing it, Yeah, you know, would be one of the questions that, that I would, yeah. Exactly. I'm curious how, you know, from a life, an overall life perspective, you know, looking back from a sky view of how you came to do the work you do today. I know you've talked a little bit about the work you're doing at Mills College and how it's led to what you're doing now. But I'm curious before that, because I feel like there's probably influences, inspirations, guides that have, you know, shown up over the course of your life. And I'm just curious if you'd be willing to share any of that or anything stands out. Yeah, sure. I mean, I appreciate the kind of wider view because I often tell the story that I shared, you know, that transition from Mills into Heartscapes and, and the kind of tension between, you know, not feeling like I was really able to contribute in my position and, you know, that story. But yeah, like, how did that, how was I in that position to begin with? And I think, Part of me wants to say happenstance, but that's not actually true. You know, I, I was a student at Mills and I was I was an art history student and intended to be an academic, teach art, art history. But there was this thread from my childhood around activism and around social justice that was not something I was intentionally pursuing as a student, but something that was just there for my individual experience. I grew up in Berkeley and like my first community was like old school Berkeley hippies, like <laughs> like people who literally built People's Park and who, you know, organized the UC Berkeley, you know, rallies and like, like those folks. And it was such an incredible gift to be brought up inside of that community. And there was so many like problems 
inside of that community, right? So there's this like tension between this living history that I got to be a member of, you know, this community, and then, you know, a lot of problematic ways in which, you know, kind of hippie culture and like new age culture that came out of it has engaged with the world and with spiritual practice in particular. And so, you know, I, I wanted to study art history in part to understand that better. Like art was the way that I could best um, engage with the world and get interested in culture and, and history. And naturally found myself drifting into classes that focused on political art, community-based art, you know, art that critiqued society, you know, that sort of direction, did my internships in those kinds of places rather than what I thought would be, I would be focusing on, which would be a more traditional art history perspective. And so that, that kind of piece kind of threaded into my education and then ultimately into my work. And I was a student of the program that I led for 11 years and, you know, was given the opportunity to blend that activist history with art. And that, you know, sold me on the idea that those two things, number one, could be blended, which I don't know that I knew <laughs> that you could do that. Similarly, I didn't know you could blend social justice with spirituality and healing, but of course you can. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's kind of what drew me in. And then this like, and then like the art kind of fell away. It was like, okay, now it's about the serious work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of that like letting go of what was so important to me was part of kind of what led to that crisis that caused me to rethink what my work was. I'm so getting little tingles because that's something I didn't know about you before. So my background is in art history as well. And same thing. It was like, oh, I'm going to go through school and I'm going to teach, which I did briefly. But then I'm like, hmm, just didn't mesh. And now I'm realizing we were watching a show last night and it was the most beautifully like artistically decorated hotel room I've ever seen. Like it was on a television show and I thought, and it reminded me of how, how powerful art can, I mean, I've always known that, but it also made me realize it's not a loss. Like doing that education and learning that doesn't mean I don't still have a life full of art and, you know, look at, you're an artist as well. You know, you've taken beautiful photos. Oh, and I want to bring up soul collage. I don't know if you're still doing soul collage. I loved that class that, I did with you. And I feel like that really ties into your, your art history and, and art background. Tell us more about that if you're still doing doing those. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love that this example of, you know, just noticing art out in the world and how just having that perspective enriches you because I, I get so irritated when people talk about the like uselessness of like a fine arts degree. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, you know, I'm not working in art history. So what was the point? The point is it gave me a worldview that is precious to me. And that has changed everything else that I've ever done. And that's what it gave me, right? So yeah, so Soul Collage was definitely born out of that coming together of creative artistic expression and this idea of turning inward and understanding ourselves better, understanding our contribution. So Soul Collage, which I know we're mostly on audio, but if, if you're ever on YouTube, which I heard you might be doing, here's a couple of Soul Collage cards. Yeah. But it's a process that was kind of designed out of a psychotherapy background. A woman named Sina Frost developed this practice. And it's literally making small scale collages, usually about five by eight inches collages that represent an aspect of ourself. So we usually go through a meditative process to just kind of invite whatever part of ourself needs to speak to us, needs to express itself, to come forward. 
make an intuitively designed collage, and then go through a really elegant process of allowing that part of ourself that we've now put into form to speak to us and tell us what it needs, what wisdom it has, what advice it has, where it might be really messing us up in our life, where it might be contributing gifts. And it's just a profound practice for understanding ourselves better, for directly accessing parts of ourselves that are distressed that we don't know about because they're subconscious, accessing parts of ourselves that are strong, that are gifts that we might not be paying attention to, putting them in conversation with each other. So it's been one of the most powerful practices for myself in you know, understanding how trauma manifests in me specifically, what are the behaviors that are associated with that, that are actually not doing me any good in my life, and to build a strategy for shifting those behaviors. So again, a very natural thing to want to share with other people. So I trained as a facilitator for that about 10 years ago, nine years ago. And the first place I got to use it was at Mills. We were in the process of putting into policy admissions criteria for transgender students. It was a women's college. And so this was a very heated conversation about, you know, what does it mean to be a welcoming space for transgender people in a supposedly single sex environment? Mm-hmm. It was a very heated, very difficult conversation. The outcome was the nation's first official admissions policy for trans students at a single sex college. And the way that we got there in part was through, you know, hosting spaces where people could really talk about what it means to them in a way that's not about accusing other people, but about like, what does this actually mean to me? And Soul Collage became a tool for doing that. So you asked if I'm still doing it. I am starting to lean back into it. I took a break from formally facilitating Soul Collage for some time for two reasons. First, you know, with COVID, shutting everything down, bringing everything online. You know, my business shut down for a good three months entirely. I had to just kind of hibernate for those first few few months and really get an understanding of my body of like what was happening. And when I turned back to, okay, how can I make these offerings remote? You know, sharing Reiki, teaching Reiki online, like I made that work. But Soul Collage, I just like, I was like, I can do this online, but I just don't want to. And I mm-hmm. back to the conversation you had in your last episode about yoga and that for you, and your guest that like, I just don't want to engage in this way at this time. So that was the first reason. And secondly, I, I was going through business coaching and really amazing supportive program called Women in Community. Highly recommend for any creative type folks running, <laughs> trying to run a business, trying to figure out how to run a business. <laughs> and one of the things that I, I really realized that I needed to do to like strengthen the momentum and the understanding of my business was to focus in more. I was like doing too many things and doing too many things that felt related and coherent to me. Like I knew what they had to do with each other, but I wasn't communicating that well. So like, what does Reiki have to do with soul collage has to do with emotional freedom technique has to do with immunity to change has to do with, you know, it was just too many things and the coherence wasn't there. So I just really distilled down like what, does it mean to practice Reiki from the perspective of its Japanese origins in service of people contributing to a more just and healthy world? What does that mean? What does that look like? And from doing that work, you know, this language and this perspective around provisioning us for the journey home came. And what I realized is that that's exactly what all of these other modalities are doing as well, right? 
Soul Collage is about provisioning us for our journey home, giving us the tools that we need to understand ourselves better so we can show up in the world better. And so I am turning back to it. And and now that my studio can open physically, I'll, I'll probably be willing to offer that again, but also choosing to lean more into what can be made available online. Because, you know, one of the gifts of this time has been learning how to do that really, really well, like learning how to facilitate a space that feels, you know, sacred and generative and creative and, you know, beautiful online. Like I'm very grateful to have built those gifts. And then it, of course, it means that I can work with more people because they don't have to be in my town. Right. (laughs) So I have students now from Canada and from all over the U S and it's been really nice. That's what, as you said, it's one of the gifts. It's initially was pretty difficult for everybody to to figure out what online anything was going to look like, much less somewhere where you're dealing with these deep and sometimes very challenging issues. And the essence of it is connection and energy and, you know, how all that works. And speaking, it's, it's interesting in terms of energy. And I wanted to switch kind of to a more personal topic, just because I think it's something really interesting about you is beekeeping. So I've been watching your your journey virtually with your beekeeping and I think taking care of chickens and just working with your local. Yeah. Just tell us about that. Like what have you been learning and loving or or not loving? I saw your post. I think it was just a couple of days ago that you did the first, I think you said it was the first bee transfer with like on your own with a teacher, I think that you've been working with and you're the second. I have one other friend who's also been doing beekeeping for the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm someone who grew up totally terrified of everything. And, you know, that wasn't all insects and animals, basically. And so I, I've mellowed over the years and come to be a little more understanding and forgiving. But there is still this like, it's fear of pain, I think, right? It's fear of getting stung. But anyway, tell us about your journey with that and how it's going. Yeah, I'd love to. And I love that you want to weave that in here. Because for me, again, <laughs> we're related, but like, how to make that and I love that you mentioned the fear of pain, right? Because literally, you know, yeah, I, I I took my hive completely apart, checked every one of the 40 frames that are in there for the first time all by myself. And I felt very proud of myself and promptly stepped on a bee with a barefoot. Like, because I, oh. I have to garden barefoot. Like, I can't not do it once the weather gets nice. And what I didn't realize and respect is that when you take the hive all apart, you know, bees that have never been outside of the hive yet get displaced. And so they're walking around on the ground, like trying to figure out where they're at. And so it's not a good time to walk around barefoot right after you. So, you know, anyway, that's funny that you said that. And I survived it, right? Because a little bit of pain, like we can Uh do it. But yeah, I mean, so gardening and, you know, the idea of like urban homesteading, this is something that's been with me most of my adult life, it actually came in in the aftermath of 9-11, of all things. Like in that time, oh. of, you know, post, you know, 9-11 terrorist attacks when we all felt so helpless. And like, you know, I was, uh, what were we, like 22, some, you know, whatever, very young. And that's a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And like, oh, my God, there's things in the world that I just can't, you know, first of all, I'm, I could be subjected to. <laughs> Right, something coming in from the outside like that, and that are you know beginning to reveal this landscape of you know political discord that I just didn't know about. Right, it was like this you know political awakening, this like awakening of fear, and inside of that, I'm like, I need one thing that I can control. You know, that feels good, that feels like it, it it's good for me and my family and my community. I just need one thing that I can control, 
and planting a garden was that thing. And that led to, you know, years, my ex-husband and I did, became very passionate about environmentalism, environmental justice, and, you know, community food access, and did a ton of work in our public schools around environmental education. And, you know, I thought for a while that would be the direction I would go in professionally. And so, yeah, gardening was just a really important piece of that. And then when I moved here to Davis 10 years ago, very different climate than the Bay Area. (laughs) I found, I don't know how to garden here. Like stuff is dying. Like it took me the longest time to realize you have to water every day here. (laughs) It is not the foggy coastal climate that I'm used to, you know? And so it kind of, I stopped doing it. And you know, that was something that like, it just became like, yeah, I don't do that anymore, whatever. But there was also this like, man, that was really important to me, right? Like, not only because it was, it was like a hobby, you know, that was part of my life for so long, but also because it gave me such a sense of purpose and contribution, and was so important for so long. And so, you know, when quarantine happened, and I went into hibernation, and my business shut down, and again, Things are happening that I have no control over and I'm being subjected to them and like, oh, I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. What can I do? You know, I can do one thing that I have control over. I can do something that's good for me and my family and my community and that connects me to people. And that reclaims this thing from before. It was a very eerie sensation of deja vu. (laughs) Same feeling, right? And same response. And so just spent the last year figuring out how to keep things alive in this hot, dry climate not always well, like I killed a lot of plants last year. (laughs) But, you know, also thinking like, how can I be a good steward of this home, this little piece of property that I live on, you know, understanding that, you know, I'm just a resident here on indigenous land that is not mine, that was not ceded to us. And how can I be a good steward of that land while I'm here? How can I make it healthier? How can I be in relationship with it? in a way that contributes rather than takes away. And so, yeah, I'm learning that. I have a bunch of chickens. I have the bees. I have some quail. I have rabbits and I have a permaculture garden and I'm just, you know, fumbling around learning how to make all of that interweave into, you know, a place that feels alive and sustainable. And it's been, yeah, it's been the best medicine for this time. And it's also, of course, like a reflection of you know, my practice, you know, I've, I've also been studying Shingon Buddhism pretty seriously for the last year to continue to deepen my understanding of the roots of Reiki and because it's beautiful and wonderful. And, you know, the idea of being, of contributing without attachment is really a powerful kind of center teaching there. And I've really been struggling with that, right? Because when I contribute and when I invest, right? We naturally attach to the outcome of, of whatever it is that we've invested in. And we get very, you know, emotionally attached, we get identified with it, you know, so if the outcome isn't what we wanted, like it's about us, you know, and our identity, and then we're suffering. And, you know, our true self and our inherent connection to the web of life is like out the window, because like, we didn't get the results that we wanted, right? And so the garden's been such a teacher in that. I mean, like I said, my last garden last summer, like, I harvested very little food, like very, very little. <laughs> I planted mm-hmm. no tomato plants, none of which gave me tomatoes. Like it, And it was really amazing to witness like a new ability, an increased ability, not a perfect ability, but an increased ability to just be with that and let that be learning and let myself not be so attached 
to that negative outcome to try again, right? To continue to contribute. Because like I said, when I first moved here, I just gave up. I was like, well, this is hard. And I feel like a failure and I don't feel good about that. So I'm just not going to do it. (laughs) So to just to change that around and say, well, let me just continue to try to be in relationship with this. And in doing so, I actually noticed the successes and the places where things actually were thriving and being wonderful. My garden is much better this year. I've got tomatoes on my plants this year. (laughs) Yay! Tomatoes are my favorite, favorite, favorite. I wanted to continue like two more questions for you. And maybe this one might be bigger than than the last one. But yeah, I know you've mentioned your your family. So you're a mom to two amazing daughters, one of whom I have met, and they are biracial in the sense that they have I'm not saying that that's their identity, but just that they have a white mom and, and a black dad. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about what motherhood in general has taught you and what, if anything, mothering children with you know, multiple identities has been like, especially in the light of the last year's events. And even before, it's not just like last year, we all became aware of inequity. What have they taught you? You know, and I realize that's a big question, but just I was I have that personal interest myself because of my background. And that's something you and I have connected on on before. And I'm sure other people would like to know just as moms in general and, and people living in this world is what what has your experience been like? Yeah, this is where we get to be like, oh, man, let me tell you. (laughs) No answers here, but reflections for sure. Yeah, Uh I mean, I mean, you know, like parenting, it's one of our most powerful and strictest teachers. Like, it's absolutely humbling if you really are paying attention. And my, my kids are 12 years apart. So my older daughter is about to turn 23 next week, Gaia. And, you know, I had her when I was 20 years old. I didn't know what I was doing. I was growing up myself, you know, I was, you know, married to her dad and we we were together for 16 years. So she had, you know, particular upbringing. We were in a, you know, very diverse community and we were very involved in our, in our community during her whole childhood. My other daughter, Layla, she's 10. So she was born actually the very same weekend we moved here to Davis. So she's very identified with this place. And, you know, and and her dad and I split when she was three. And so she's having a very different upbringing. And I'm having a very different mothering experience inside of that, which is, like I said, at the the foremost is is humbling. They're very different people. And they aligned well with my own journey, I think. For example, when I was 20, I had no idea how to set boundaries with, with kids. I had very few boundaries growing up as a child, and I had no idea how to provide like a structured container for a child to grow in. And so my older daughter had a lot of freedom and a lot of, you know, she didn't hear the word no very often from me, at least. It was a point of contention with her dad because he was better at that. And she was very, she's very self-directed, right? Like it actually worked okay for her. My younger daughter like pushes boundaries constantly, like at every turn. And, you know, during the time that she was born was this time period where I was, you know, turning to different ways to heal myself. And this rock bottom period that I was talking about, she was born kind of into that. And one of the first things that I realized was that I needed to create structure for myself, you know, for all of us. And she was my best teacher in that because she absolutely pushed every boundary every single time. (laughs) <laughs> and still does. And it's been beautiful. Like she expresses everything that's on her heart. 
So that's the first thing I'll say. In terms of of their multiracial identity and my white identity, that has been similarly a tremendous teacher. And one of the first things that I learned with Gaia, you know, so this was like years later, but like in reflection of her of her growing up, that because I felt so anxious that I was going to do it badly, right? not only parent badly, but like parent a child with a racial identity different than mine badly. And because she looks like me, she doesn't, you know, her, her racial identity is ambiguous. And, you know, generally she's white. younger daughter, not so much. She, she takes after her dad genetically more. But I was so I was so concerned that she wouldn't be connected with her, you know, African American identity that like I overcompensated that. And there was a certain point we went to my family reunion and she starts hearing all these stories about my family and where we come from and you know our ancestors in Wales and Scotland and England. And she's like, I had no idea we were from Wales and Scotland and England. And I'm like, I haven't told her one damn thing about my family, like at all. Right. Like I have not equipped her to understand this whole half of herself because I was overcompensating. So that was one of the first things that I realized was like that I had like an anxiousness that wasn't actually serving her well. And I think the second thing is like from a lens that is, you know, on the one hand, academic, on the other hand, like, you know, in the trenches of activism, but from the perspective of, of a white person coming in from the outside the difference between that understanding and sharing that with them, right? Like letting that knowledge be available to them in age appropriate ways and their actual lived experience of it, which is different than mine. And that they are the expert of that. I could talk to you all day long about like critical race theory and like this movement and that activist and blah, blah, blah. But like what actually matters most is their lived experience about that, which is profoundly different from mine. And the difference between the experiences that that the two of them are having, right? Like Gaia grew up white passing in a almost all black school, had particular experiences around that, right? Layla is, you know, clearly mixed race and is in a, you know, for this town, reasonably diverse, but this is a very white town that we live in. And that, you know, the two of them are building expertise that's absolutely invaluable and that that tension between like wanting to you know just wanting them to have the best life that they can and understand as much as they can about why things might be happening why they're witnessing certain things you know i <laughs> just one specific example of a place that like i have academic understanding about but like my kids have lived experience about you know this dynamic of white people when we're together you know there's this letting down of like the censoring of our language that can happen. And so, you know, frequently if you're in a space where there's only white people, you know, things will be said that would not be said in mixed race company. Right. And there's this idea that like, Oh, we can, we can say things a little bit less censored because we're all together. right? And then, so for me, my job is like, okay, how can I build the courage and the you know resilience to like interrupt that say, Hey, that sounded kind of racist. Why would you say that that way? You know, I, I don't, actually agree with what you just said, you know, whatever, whatever the interruption of that pattern is. Whereas, you know, Gaia, who's white passing, but identifies as black, she's gets in in that situation where somebody makes a racist comment thinking she's white, thinking that they're collaborating, right? We're on the same side here. Now, how does she hold that? Right? 
for her to interrupt that means something different than for me to interrupt that, right? Like, does she out herself? You know, does she get to like be indignant and angry? Then what's the consequence of that? I mean, it's just, there's so many layers to that scenario that she's the expert on and I'm not. So I think, in, and in this time in particular, like that's been a dynamic, you know, this whole time, but in these, this past couple of years in this past year where, you know, racial injustice is at the forefront in a way that it hasn't been for a while, you know, training myself to regard them as experts in their own experience has, has like come back up as like, I need to pay attention to that much more explicitly and ask them, you know, ask them rather than always assuming the position of the one who's going to be teaching or informing or guiding, but like, you know, humble myself to ask them what they know and what their experience is. And that's your, I'm marveling at the circle of that though too, right? Because your your business and hardscapes is like, how do we tool ourselves for this journey to ourselves? And that's exactly what you're doing simply by letting them be and share what that experience is. I, I just marvel at the parallels of that, how your work formally and informally is showing up in this way. And, and that's no small thing. <laughs> so that's very much a place where the patterning of colonial identity can show up, right? I'm the authority. I'm the expert in the room. You know, information is mostly unidirectional. You know, I'm the one who has something to share. I'm the one who has power. And we've like, we've grown up steeped in that. Right. So it, it, kind of, it gets expressed everywhere. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like always part of this work for me is to be able for myself and for others to be able to be vigilant with that, diligent in that without becoming paranoid and anxious and upset and to suffer because of it. Right. Because we're going to give it up if it's causing us to suffer, <laughs> you know, if examining my privilege and my colonial mindsets like causes me consistent suffering, like I'm probably not going to do it, you know, or I'm not going to do it consistently. And so how can we be provisioned such that we can do that work, but remain connected to the, the truth of who we are, which is, you know, connected to all of life. Beautiful. Cool. Exactly. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And as we all know, there's no there's no awards for motherhood. We're all just doing the the best we can, right? And that's we learn and they learn as we go. We've had we've had a similar journey. I had my my girls young too. And I wanted to as we kind of wrap up, this episode is airing towards the end of June. So I know during the month of June you had a 21-day long mantra journey course. I guess maybe tell us a little bit about that or any future offerings in the summer that perhaps listeners could find out more about? Yeah, definitely. So the 21 day mantra journey, it's something that I do each season. So we do the 21 days between the first of the month and the the solstice or the equinox. And mantra is a essential component. It's one of the five components of the original system of Reiki. And so mantra and chanting in general is highly prevalent in Shingon and in that's gotten filtered out of that when I found it, it was like, it's not right. And then just, you know, there's just incredible physiological, emotional and spiritual impacts of chanting mantra. 
And so I've, you know, been a, on the facilitated side of a lot of different types of mantra, you know, Vedic traditions and lots of, you know, other types. But, you know, what we're offering is, you know, from the Japanese tradition primarily. And so the, the one in June was working with a mantra called the Furomyo mantra. Furomyo is a central deity in Japanese Buddhism. And we just meet for a half an hour every day for 21 days. We chant on some days, learn a little bit of context, a little bit of the history, a little bit of, you know, what this mantra is. And then we just are in practice together. The 21 day practice is a traditional format in Japan associated with, with Shingon and Shinto. So we picked that up. So that has, is just ending, but we do our intuition lab once a month, the first Wednesday of every month. So July 7th is the next one that is free to our community, to anybody who's on my email list, you get a monthly invitation to that. And we're, we're exploring the phenomenon of our intuition from the perspective of, of Reiki and of, this idea of provisioning ourselves for the journey. We offer, also offer a monthly Reiki Foundations class. And this is a three-hour class. It's designed for people who want to learn about the Japanese foundations of, of Reiki and to just begin to build a personal practice. So it's learning several fundamental foundational practices that are specifically for self-practice, not about working with other people at all. And that you know really provision you for beginning a self-practice and just beginning to learn about that perspective. And then for folks who do want to take a full Reiki certification class, we're starting our cycle of those. There's three levels. And the level one Shodan class is July 31st through August 1st. And the foundations is July 10th. It's every second Saturday. Nice. Oh, God. So that is, that's right around the corner. Amazing. So what is the best way for listeners to connect with you, what you're doing, potentially explore those, those courses and the things that you offer? Yeah, so the website's always a great place to start. It's heartscapesinsight.com. There you can sign up for the newsletter email list, which will you'll then receive invitations to just share teachings and practices on topics related to all of this stuff. And then I'm also on Instagram and, and Facebook under Heartscapes. Fabulous. I will include all of those links in the show notes so people can find them at a quick click and as well in our, our posts on Instagram that go out for this episode. So Michaela, thank you again mm-hmm. so much for being here with us today. It was, yeah. and I say this every time because it's true, but I feel like we could talk for two hours. I don't know if everybody would listen that long, but I feel like what you've brought is really valuable mm-hmm. and really personal and really authentic. And I just want to thank you for your time and your energy and for being a friend. I know we haven't had a chance to hug in a long time, but hopefully that will be soon. Yeah. Yeah. So listeners, stay tuned, connect with Michaela. We'll provide those links, as I said, in the show notes and on the website and tune in in another two weeks. We'll drop another episode. So keep listening closely and expanding exponentially because it's always a great time for your mind to be on the map.